for the first time ever actually we've got two two guest um presenters today um Roz and super um from butter drinks um we've been working with them for a little while now very interesting actually a very interesting for a drinks company which is good because it's such a competitive market they both come from very different backgrounds Roz actually um grew up in a typical english countryside setting very lovely um whereas super came from the hustle and bustle of an indian city they met whilst working in banking. Actually, this is not an entirely uncommon story, that one. <laughs> banking and lawyers, actually, we get quite a few of. Um, but their contrasts have really informed their friendship as well as their vision for the drinks company. Um, so they left their corporate careers and um, got together to create a new type of soft drink um, and share their mission of encouraging people to find a love of the flavours that have been used for centuries in the East. So something really different, which is, which is great. Um, so far, they've created a range of non-alcoholic drinks using botanicals with an elegant striking brand. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted they've joined us today, actually, um, to talk about their journey. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so we'll, Hi, Mel. Thank you for that. Pleasure. Um, so we'll start, we'll start at the beginning then. Can you tell me how you came to start Boda Drinks? What you, you know, a bit more about what you were doing before and how the idea came about. I'm always interested in those light bulb moments. Well, I think um, obviously I come from India and as you said, I grew up in the mm -hmm. hustle and bustle going to school in, um, you know, Tuk Tuk. So um, I've, I've lived in the UK for about 20 years now and and there's always something that I kind of go back. I've, I've been one of the kind of very lucky people that I've been traveling to India very, very often. You know, I, I go five, six times a year in the last few years. So um, that that kind of gave me the sense of like every time I go back there's always something missing when I come back and it could be a little spice or it could be a little um, you know like a very nostalgic thing that I grew up with and and the one thing that really caught me was this is sort of back in sort of 2015 14-15 um, was um, there's a particular coconut water you get in India um, in southern part of India where I grew up and that's from a particular coconut tree and this was like way before Vita Coco came on board and this whole coconut water madness that goes on now um, in, 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 in the drink space. And I have always been like, oh, I wish I could get this in the UK. You know, you get, you get pretty much everything in the UK now. You go to Tesco, you could get like a range of Indian spice. And, and I was yeah. like, oh, this coconut water would be so great to be, you know, spread around the world. This is one of the best things. And I think that that's where the kind of the spark started to see, could we actually import this from India to the UK? And sort of back in 2018, I did a little bit of groundwork and it mm -hmm. looked like it's fresh coconut water from the time it kind of gets prepared, taken off the trees to actually consumption. It's like a 12 days um, period that has to be refrigerated. And, you know, so that was just like absolute logistical nightmare. But like the light bulb moment was actually the coconut water. It's like, how do we get this amazing flavored coconut water and actually we call it tender coconut water because the coconut actually looks green in color so um, <laughs> um that's that was the light bulb moment and when we couldn't sort of when i couldn't logically figure out a way to ship this across i said oh there's so many other drinks actually which will have a longer shelf life and that's not kind of available in the uk you know things things that my mom would make you know on a summer yeah. day or you know things that that you kind of go to a wedding, they'll give it as an appetizer because Indian weddings don't serve alcohol. Okay. Um, you know, you go to a reception, nobody drinks champagne and it's like all this recipe that's kind of made with very natural ingredients. A chef will just make up a big pot of drink and serve it to people. So yeah. that's where the inspiration came from. 
And, you know, it's kind of a thing that's going on in your mind. And I met Ross, you know, 2018 and, you know, a couple of years of friendship at work. And, and when I actually told Ross about this and Ross was like, oh, I think, I, I think this is something we can do together. And, and I think that just solidified the whole plan. And I was like, okay, I think we, you know, somebody's taking this very seriously, actually. So I better take it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so that, that, that really where we started off. Um, and it's just been, it's been, it's been so much learning in the last, you know, sort of 18 months or so. Yeah. That's fantastic. So what's your, what's your vision or, or mission or however you want to frame it for the business? Yeah. So um, what we want to become um, is kind of the go-to brand for, um, for Eastern inspired soft drinks. So that's kind of where we want to position ourselves and also, um, be known for using, um, you know, as like a premium brand using premium ingredients, like say we're using real botanicals in the mm-hmm. drink. And also, you know, the trend is at the moment to reduce sugar as much as possible. And we've, you know, tried to keep the sugar as low as possible. Yeah. So that's kind of where we want to position, you know, premium, Eastern, um, you know, healthy without sacrificing taste kind of thing. Um, in terms of, uh, where we want to go at the moment we're establishing ourselves in the UK but we're already having conversations with the countries and that's where we want to go global really so go out to other countries that's yeah. fantastic yeah that's great so before you before you launch it's great that you have a really clear vision um but before you launch did you do anything to get feedback on your products to test to test what the consumer thought what we did is we've got friends and family. So we created a, a taste sheet um, where we asked, you know, what do you think of the, um, obviously the flavor, the um, aroma, what it looks like. So we went out to various friends and family and also people in the trade, um, asked them what they, what they thought of the drink and like rated it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took all of that on board. Um, we also had a focus group and we, we operated this all within lockdown and sent it out and um, we had um, like a Zoom call with them so we could see their feedback and what they felt about the, the drinks. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Um, but yeah, we, we, we got, we, I don't know, we, t- we took on board all the feedback, um, but there is obviously people like our first wave of Rose, uh, some people just, didn't like rose so that you know that was fine um so we took it on balance yes so if there's like a common theme running through the feedback then we took it on board tweaked um but yeah we, we did go out mm. i think there's one other thing as well if i can add i think uh, yeah. we took a fair bit of feedback on design actually um mm. we we did a massive survey monkey uh, run and that was really useful so we kind of shortlisted for design with you know the, the color themes were the same, but the the, the getup of the packaging, we shortlisted four of them, and we went through a we went through, I think we went through like about 150 to 200 people on a survey monkey across the world. It was sort of the COVID time, so that really helped um, to kind of streamline the process. And I think we went with the design, and then the feedback kept coming back with a different design as a top one. What we had as number two was the top one. So we actually ah. would that be fair to say, Ross? To mm. Sort of we said we'll go with the one that sort of it's a it's a bigger um yeah. um connection with people what's what's working okay just t- tell me a little bit about how you've approached product development just for everyone else's understanding you know, what, was, what was your experience of developing products 
Um, well, we came from absolutely no experience whatsoever. So it was, uh, it was a real learning curve. Um, we, we just had no idea how to bottle, how to produce recipes and things like that. But I mean, how, how we, once we got an understanding, how we approached it was um, we made prototypes. Mm-hmm. So um, we would use off the shelf ingredients and put them together to make um, the recipe and get it as close as you know we want it to be. And then we use that as a basis for product development. So, and obviously there are changes in the taste as you go through that process. Yeah. Um, because you're using commercial ingredients. Um, but yeah, we, we kind of got as close as we could to the actual prototype. It's quite a common route actually, sort of doing, a, I don't know what you call it, like a domestic kitchen sample and then yeah. going to scaling it up. It's quite a good way of testing out your thoughts into something in reality, which is great. How about the, um, how about moving on from there into getting them manufactured and scaling up? What we did there is we, we did kind of assessments from various manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a, a, like a standard RFP process that you'd, you'd follow um, and kind of rank them all in, you know, how they met our criteria. Um, so we found one that was predominantly focused on um, sort of startups or smaller side of business. What's in your range now and what sorts of products are you looking to develop going forwards? Um, so I think we, we've got, you know, we, we've got the first, our uh, sort of, you know, very close to our heart, our baby, the rose and cardamom. And, you know, and that's, um, uh, you know, just in, in terms of development itself, you know, we wanted a very particular rose and yeah. which is kind of, you know, it, it's got the right nose, it's got the right aroma, and it's also got the, and it doesn't uh, smell like a, you know, a, a perfume. So it was a real hard balance to find that rose. And we went through um, series and series of tasting rounds and things like that. So we've got that in, in you know, it's our first sort of a um, thing that we did. We've, we've just kind of going to be launching two more flavors. One is uh, a ginger spice, which, you know, you, you, you guys have been part of. And um, yeah. another one is the chili lemonade, um, which I think everybody gets really excited when I say chili lemonade, because I think it's never been done before. So um, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we have. But I think we're kind of keeping true to the ethos that we kind of want to get you know, use very real ingredients, you know, things that would be made up of kitchen ingredients. And we've kind of kept the, the ingredient list in the can really, really short. So if you take sort of the rose drink, it's got like the rose extract, the, the, the cardamom extract and t- tiny bit of sugar. And, um, and that's pretty much it. And, and a little bit of natural rose flavoring. We've not kind of, we've, re- it, it's, that's, Sticking to that has been a real hard one is not to um, get in a sweetener or a mouth filler or anything and mm. to keep it something really clean and simple and make it taste good, I think has been a, has, has been a hard one. Um, and it's been hard for, for the food scientists who work with us and all the teams who work with us as well. So, yeah, so that's, that's I think, where we are at the minute. So, yeah, we'll be launching soon in February and um, available online and everywhere else. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. It's, a, yeah, just to resonate, you're talking about the different flavours, actually. It's it's a hard line to take, actually. You want to be new and innovative um, and deliver your deliver against your brand. But at the same time, if you go too far, you can lose the customers as well. I think you've, you've hit quite a good space in that, in that sweet spot. So uh, hopefully we'll see that with consumer pickup um, yeah. this month when you go. 
Um, so to tell me a little bit about how you're selling. What channels are you selling your products through at the moment and how did they evolve? And do you, have you, if from that, if you've got any learnings or recommendations on what worked well or didn't work well, that would be quite interesting. I think I would say we're sort of pre-revenue at the minute. Um, I think the way we are selling, I mean, we, we were very pleasantly surprised how quickly we kind of sold 1,000 cans of rose. Um, you know, we, we made like 2,000 cans and we sold 1,000 cans and that just was like a really big uh, boost. It's like, oh, okay, this is actually, people are buying it. And and that's that's been fantastic. But we, we more kind of wanted to really get um, understanding of the product market fit. You know, we, we kind of, you know, we said, okay, this is the route we want to go after. Our USP is going to be the premium Eastern soft drink made in the UK, not really have been done before. Um, so that's the space. Is that kind of hitting the right mark with people? So um, we've tied up with some um, really good sort of partners. You know, um, Career Nonstop has been the one which is based in Covent Garden. And mm-hmm. um, and, and they've, they've, they've been selling it for the last sort of six months from the time we've launched and we've had such good feedback. We've got another restaurant um, in Limehouse, Mala. Um, they, they've been very supportive. And so it's kind of just seeing whether this is working as a concept. And that's been a very, very big tick. Um, we are not selling the new range yet. And I think that will be really good to sort of see um, what, what, what people feel like. Um, so we are at the minute pre-revenue, but, but I think during pandemic, what, what's, been, what's been really interesting is when we started, we said, okay, our route to market, we're gonna go out to Pan-Asian, Middle Eastern restaurants. Mm-hmm. That's where we're gonna be and then get into retail. But people have become really comfortable buying things online. Um, you know, I would never order, you know, I, I order everything in Amazon now. Like I, I want to, I don't <laughs> know, I, I want a toothbrush I order in Amazon. So it, it, it's really changed the game so much. So then we initially, our website was just going to be like, a, you know, a validation point, you know, like a brand building exercise. Yeah. But now we're like, we're actually selling um, in, um, in, in, in sort of, you know, online uh, on our website and we're kind of setting up Amazon shop. And so it's, it's kind of like, okay, online is going to be very much a part of this. So, um, so, it's, so that's, that's kind of where we are at the minute. And we're just getting to start to distributors, um, you know, who supply restaurants, who, who, who supply cafes. So that's just an ongoing process. So the, the sales, like what we knew sort of a year back when we did the plan, to now the, that's changed so much that we, we've just been learning every single you know day around how we're going to move so yeah that's that's kind of where we are uh, that, that's really interesting you sort of pre- slightly preempted my next question actually I, I was going to ask about whether whether the um the lockdown and the pandemic affected you of course it did but actually I, you've already talked to it to a certain extent and actually been able to roll with it by the sounds of it um so you talked about doing zoom consumer research you know when you can face to face going more online um are you in terms of sales channels though you you talked about starting with um restaurants um but then building online are you finding the food service part of things also now starting to grow out a bit more I think I think they're probably a little bit better than what they were in COVID time. So we kind of I think that's that was a change. Like when sort of the whole lockdown happened, we were like, oh, restaurants are closed, and we are, this is not the right time to go into restaurants. Then we should probably yeah. look at retail. But I think now sort of it's opening up, and we kind of also getting better at saying, you know, we are narrowing down to London first, and we've got yeah. like you know a list of fifty restaurants that we want to kind of target or go after. So we we are I think that's an evolution process. We are evolving as well. Yeah. 
um, yeah. to kind of narrow that down, I think. But definitely, I think restaurants and hospitality is definitely picking up now. Um, there is there is more movement and there is just people going out now a lot more. So, yeah. No, I was just saying it has an impact on also production. You know, what do you produce? Because online, yeah. you're selling cans because, you know, bottles are a bit dodgy to be sending out in the post. So we prefer yeah. to sell, uh, send out cans online. Whereas restaurants, things are nicer in a bottle. Mm. So it's quite where you have plans of like we're going restaurant produce bottles suddenly it changes you know to cans and things like that so um yeah it kind of changes the production schedule as well and also what you need to buy in and things like that yes which is where the shelf life of your product comes in as well um just yeah. to your original idea um with a shorter shelf life came coming from a shorter shelf life product yeah. Um, that, you know you've, you've got an ambient stable product that lasts for a bit longer that, that must help somewhat in terms of mm. planning production and what stock you've got available to go out yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. and in terms of the whole COVID situation uh, Mel that you touched upon I think I think yes it was really hard to kind of do a lot of things but we did do a lot of tasting on you know on, on Zoom like you know we'll get samples sent out we'll do it on Zoom but I think it also opened up another venue. We were not limited geographically. So we could actually post out, you know, um, you know, for, you know I, I have a friend who works for Kellogg's in FMCG and I could actually post out the sample to her and get her feedback. And um, I could send samples to India and get them feedback. And I could send samples across the world and get feedback. But if you have like not had COVID, I think we would all sort of be so focused on just getting up into a room and, and doing it. So I think it, in, in a way it sort of helped us to get a variety of feedback from a variety of backgrounds and taste palettes, because I think that makes a big difference um, yes. to, to get that, yeah. So I've just got, I'm gonna pause for a moment actually. I've got a question um, from Majed, apologies if I'm saying your name incorrectly. Um, just asking about what helped you the most in selling through your website. Do you have any tips for selling through the website? Um, I think, I think a couple of things really helps, um, obviously having a website built by a designer, um, you know, I think gives the right impression and, um, and, and just kind of flows. So we, you know, I, I've been kind of all the websites that I like, I've been sort of, you know, mood boarding it in a way and, you know, me and Ross then sort of flush it out and knock it off and, and really it's kind of working with the designer to get a really nice website that flows together that tells the story of what you're trying to tell and you know everything that you touch on the website kind of resonates of that. I think that really helps. Um, I think social media and Facebook are, are, are the big thing now. So I think you know, you've got to be on it. You've got to have uh, a presence and you've got to have people talking about you. We've, um, so yeah, so I think that those two are the key points. I think having a good website that flows really better, it just it makes the transaction really easy. And you know, for example, um, I was I was listening to a podcast and for Airbnb on one of the biggest online platform they said from the time anywhere you're on the page you're three clicks away to check out mm. and I think we kind of I was like oh this is just like we kind of use this you know nuggets from places that we learn and you know we are we kind of really tried building we should be three clicks away to check out so I think it, it really makes a difference how your website is set out and how easy it is to transact. Yeah, that's that's great. Oh, hopefully that's helpful, Majet. Um, um, yeah, check out their website. It looks, it does look good. It does look good. Um, so it sounds, it's interesting actually. It sounds like you've taken a similar approach to 
physical prototype development as you did to the website. So you mood boarded it prior yeah. to put your own thoughts together prior to perhaps briefing someone else. And in product development, you started in the kitchen prior to then moving on to commercial development. That's that's interesting. Um, and I, obviously, I remember when you, you first came to us, do you, re, do you remember how you found Frogcop and decided to work with us? Yeah, we, we found you online. Um, and so obviously what drew us um, to Frogcop was um, the offer of like a development day, and like hands-on opportunity just to um, come in and um, obviously we'd sent the prototype prior to the day but yeah. what really drew us was the fact was the, the opportunity to come in and just tweak away for us, you know, so that we actually got the uh, the end result on the day. So that, that was really helpful. And also um, what was good is that um, there were some tricky ingredients. I don't know if you remember, Mel, that we wanted to source. And uh, you actually managed to source quite a complicated ingredient that could be commercialised. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the tough things about product development, actually. There's no one, I get asked this on a regular basis, there's no one portal that you can go to online that has all of the ingredients and all of the pricing. It's such a yeah. such a vast world out there. <laughs> you need yeah. a big network. Yeah, and it's good actually coming out at the end of the day um, with the recipe and with the nutritionals as well. Yes. Uh, you know. It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's just a package that appealed to us. Really. Okay. I, development days work well for a lot of people actually mm. some people aren't interested and just you know want to brief a project and just go away and get on with it but uh, yeah. it's very nice to be able to interact with it and I think you understand it more fully as well at the end yeah. um, which is good so um how did you um develop your business model um moving on and sort of your sales strategy before setting out um does it I guess it looks somewhat different to how you started now um, I think, um, yes, I think it's definitely evolving still is, is what would be my honest answer. I think, you know, when you sort of start out, um, and I think this is like, we come from a very corporate background, you know, we sort of IT contractors in the past. So when you start out, you sort of have this vision of, um, you know, you're going to make the product and a fantastic product and you're going to sell it. And that's pretty much it. But actually, there is a, there's a lot of layers that go on to it. You know, there's a huge in any business, I guess there's a huge cost to acquiring customers. And as a startup, I think we don't think about it enough. You know, it, it, there is a cost to acquiring customers. So mm -hmm. I think we kind of still figuring out like the sales model to say, right, if, if you're going down this restaurant route, that's like a one route. And we've yeah. got this distributor route, that's the one route. But if you, when you're really wanting to scale up, you know, are we able to spend that cost of acquiring customers because that kind of goes hand in hand. I think in terms of a business model, I think we, we are more thinking about, we've just kind of got a good product market fit. Mm -hmm. um, it's like about having it listed in hundred places is like the first goalpost. And I think we sort of check ourselves where we are. And we, I think we, if we have to pivot, we'll pivot. It's definitely a key success factor. I've, I've heard you reference this a few times since we've been talking today. Being able to pivot, listening to what the customer or the the seller is saying, um, and and rolling with it—that's um, it's not something that everyone can do. Interestingly, yeah, it's a it's it's brilliant thing to be able to do. Yeah, and we've kind of kept it very consciously that way. I think it's it's a very deliberate decision. Um, you know, because we're keeping a very lean team. We we kind of using a lot of 
um, freelancers and um, and advisors to kind of give us you know um, industry expertise. And it's it's that kind of we've kind of told ourselves like the first two three years is going to be just figuring this out. Um, and then we sort of see where we want to go because you, you always kind of get asked when you're talking to investors and stuff like, what's your end game? And it's like, yeah. we don't know the end game yet. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, yeah, I think it's it's just um, just being open and it, it's like your first hundred customers would, would is, is, you know, we want the first hundred customers to love us and then we sort of take it from there. Yeah. Now that sounds like a sounds like a great plan. Looking back so far, obviously you're very much still on the journey. But um, what do you think the most important things you've learned along the way are? You know, if there was something you could go back and tell yourself at the start, what would it be? Um, I think something we've learned along the way, um, because obviously a startup, you, you know, you, you, you're strapped for money and you have to be so careful. Yeah. where you're spending your money um i think you know we kind of fell into the sort of well, i don't know we we kind of approached uh expensive agencies to start with mm-hmm. um i think that you know they they could only provide us with you know like packaging and, and things like that and we had to go like to an agency to get good packaging where actually we came to realize quite quickly that once we develop our own like mood board you get an idea of designs we like colors we like you could actually use freelancers mm-hmm. you know there's websites like um fiverr um that can be used to actually just pull together very cheaply some ideas yeah and without spending the thousands that you do spend when you employ th- these companies so I think doing it again, we'd kind of utilize that more um, because in the end, we did, we did kind of go that route where we actually ended up using freelancers and using our designs and things like that. So, yeah. um, and similarly, website design, um, you can use freelancers for website design, you know, that's for a startup to actually launch a website, you, you can just use freelancers and then maybe once you've got more money available, you can you know, go to these big um, agencies who create websites. So we just found you could actually save quite a bit of money. Um, I'm aware we've just hit half past 10, but we can allow a couple of questions if anyone would like to ask. Uh, I have one more question, uh, if you may. So uh, how did you how did you go about deciding the volume for, the, for your first batch? Uh, was it, did you just go with the MLQ to test for the market? what the demand is and then decide the next batch uh, based on a, let's say a forecast or, or how do you go about that? Sorry, I'm just going to, I'm going to repeat your question just to make sure we understand. So you're asking when you yeah. launched the first one, did you sort of wait and see the demand of the product and launch two more? Is that what you're asking? Exactly. So the first okay. batch, you just bought for the MOQ to test the market and then let's say bought a, a bigger batch. Um, yes, I think, um, yes, exactly. So when we sort of scaling up and you're kind of working with, a, um, you know, sort of somebody who produces 5,000 unit, um, you do something called a trial run, um, which they would probably produce like a 2,000, 3,000 units. So we did do a trial run of the first one and just getting that out was, was very, very yeah. useful because it also helps like, 
I think, you know, one of the key learnings Ross said about that is probably, there's probably two things I would probably want to mention is that you don't have to get everything 100% right the first time because it's, it's you know, even a label or any design changes because if you're making something, it's only like a thousand cans, you will reprint again. You can upgrade it later. But I think when we're doing it for the first time, we were so keen on getting it 100%. We probably spent a, a very long time um, trying to work through every single detail. You don't have to. Um, I think mm. you you will print again. You will tweak the yeah. recipe again. So I think you just need to. So that that really helps to kind of do a trial and then get into a a, a more slightly bigger production and you know and scaling up. Very clear. Thank you. And I think there's one other point. You know, one of the and this is probably a positive thing learning that I would sort of put out there to like kind of other co-founders and people who are starting the journey is. Um, like to have a co-founder has been like one of the best things and you know and it's it's really helped to keep the focus on um, because there are so many times um, you know like the COVID times you know I, I had a personal tra tragedy with COVID myself and I would have just given up and said no I'm not doing this but to have Ross I couldn't do it you know I, I had to do it for Ross and you had to do it for your team you know you had to do it for your partners so I think um, for people who are thinking about probably getting somebody involved, I would absolutely recommend having a co-founder on board because it, then you there is there is a sense of responsibility comes in with it, and there is you're committed. We have you know every morning we have a check-in call, you know we have like a day pulse call, which you know which if I was like kind of doing it, one person is doing it by yourself, it it becomes very different. So I think I would say that, and we've also been very good in having a lot of advices from a lot of areas. We've not really formalized it. That's probably something we're trying to do now, but we've always had like um, somebody from a sales background giving us advice, you know, can you look over this? Somebody from an FMCG background, can you look over this, give us some feedback? So, you know, if you sort of look at your immediate circle, you will have these people that you would know, you know, and, and people are so helpful. And, you know, you just say, oh, can you spend half hour? I just want to run through this, you know, give me your thoughts. And there are so many things that comes out of it. Um, it, it does really help. So, so start thinking about who are the people, you know, you're not going to have expertise on every single thing, but who are the people you, you know that you can approach and have them in a panel and, and, and getting a co-founder does change your game. That's great, great advice. <laughs> Speaking of someone who doesn't have a co-founder. <laughs> <laughs> any, any last questions from anyone? Uh, yeah, I have one. Um, sure. First question, what was, your, what was your biggest unexpected cost? Um, and then sort of slightly follow-up question, you mentioned investors, apart from money, obviously, capital injection, what makes a good investor? Um, unexpected cost, personally for me, is trademarking an IP. And if you are thinking of going to other countries, it's to what we've learned is that you need to um, really check trademarking in all countries and get a clear run before you know launching ideally and uh, so yes uh ip lawyer costs <laughs> expensive <laughs> yeah and the next question was you said about what's um what's a, what makes a good investor um i think i think it's it's um it's kind of like investors i, I mean you know we're kind of looking for people who who are we're kind of having conversations at the minute. And I think what is key for us is to have a strategic partnership than a, just an investor because it's kind of dead money. You know, somebody just giving you money and, you know, go ahead and do stuff. 
So we're kind of looking for somebody who's probably got an interest in drinks background or probably has, you know, been a part of the drinks background. So I think that makes a big difference and how that will open doors for us will make a big difference. So I think it's like more of a strategic partnership than just a pure transactional, you know, angel investor relationship. I think that's kind of where we are heading towards. Is that fair to say, Ross? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. Okay. I think, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap up now. Um, but thank you everyone for the questions. And yeah, just thank you to Ros and Super for your um, taking the time this morning and talking through your business. Everyone have a great yeah. weekend. Thank you, Mel. Thank you. If you've got a question about your product development, you can always contact us via the website www.frockhop.co.uk. You can book a free of charge introductory call at www.frockhop.co.uk forward slash meet. You'll find a wealth of free resources for starting, developing and scaling your food or drink product and business at www.frockhop.co.uk forward slash resources.